Chapter 30 of The Romance of Modern Electricity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in August 2022. The Romance of Modern Electricity by Charles R. Gibson. Chapter 30 How We Measure Electricity. Our present primitive methods of measuring material things. No artificial standards in electricity. A most eccentric genius does much to aid electrical progress. How the electrical units were named. An absent-minded philosopher. An explanation of the units. How the pressure and rate of flow are measured. How the consumption is measured. The earliest consumption meter. How a modern electric meter works. A clumsy method of paying for energy and an exact electrical method. To measure any material thing is an easy matter, for we may compare it with some other known object. One may say that a thing is so many times longer or heavier than a certain other thing which we agree to take as a standard. Some of the earliest standards used were the finger, the hand, the forearm, cubit, the foot, the span, the stride, the mile of 1,000 paces, and so on. Early in the 14th century, about 10 years after the Battle of Bannockburn, it was agreed that three grains of barley, dry and round, do make an inch, and 12 inches make one foot. Even now our methods are entirely artificial, although, fortunately, more definite than these primitive standards. It would seem very primitive indeed if our legislators merely made two chalk marks on the floor of the House of Commons, and then informed us that the distance between these two marks must be reckoned a foot or a yard or any other name they cared to give it. But in point of fact our present method is really just as primitive, except that we have taken care to preserve the marks for future reference. We have, locked up at the Standards Office in London, a bronze bar, 38 inches long, having two gold studs sunk into the bar near its ends. On both studs a line is cut, and the distance between these two parallel marks is the length we have agreed to call the yard. But in order to be as exact as possible, the measure must be made when the metal bar is at a temperature of 62 degrees Fahrenheit. All other lineal measures are either smaller parts or multiples of this definite but artificial standard. The unit of weight is the pound, and this is defined by a certain piece of platinum, also preserved in the standards office. Four copies of these standards are deposited in other places of safety, in case of any accident. The French have attempted a more natural standard of length, in taking the meter as one ten millionth part of the quadrant of the earth through Paris, but this is not absolutely correct, so that the French have their standards preserved in their capital, just as we have. On visiting the Bank of England, one finds that, instead of counting the sovereigns, an official desiring to fill a bag with, say, 1,000 pounds, simply weighs out a certain weight of sovereigns as though he were weighing sugar. This is, of course, a perfectly reliable method as the scales are very sensitive, 
and he already knows by experience that one thousand sovereigns weigh a certain amount, so he is confident that if he gets the weight correct, he will have the number of sovereigns also correct. The number of coins is here arrived at by the weight, or in other words, by the effect of gravity upon the mass of the coins. We measure heat by its expansive effect upon a column of mercury or spirit, or by its electrical effect, as explained in an earlier chapter, and in a similar fashion we measure electricity by its effects. In previous chapters we have noted the magnetic effect produced by a current flowing in a coil of wire, and as the magnetic effect is in proportion to the amount of the controlling current, we have, in this effect, an exact means of measurement, and most electrical measuring instruments are based upon this magnetic effect. If we take a coil of wire and suspend a magnetic needle in it, we find the magnet deflected more and more as the current increases, but the amount of movement will, of course, be also dependent on the size of the coil, the number of its turns, etc., so where are we to find a convenient standard to lock up? It is fortunate we do not require to base our electrical units upon any artificial standard, as we do for our measures of length and weight. When electricity came to be used in everyday life, it was found necessary to have a definite measure to refer to, for it would not do merely to record, as some early experimenters did, that the current required for a certain result was such that it dashed the needle of his largest galvanometer against its stops, and so on. About forty years ago it became quite evident that a great deal would depend in the practical applications of electricity upon having a proper system of measurements. With this in view, the British Association for the Advancement of Science appointed a committee of scientific men, with Sir William Thomson, Lord Kelvin, as its leading light, to suggest suitable standards of electrical measurement. It is not within the scope of this book to show how these absolute units were arrived at, and indeed, a statement of the facts would not interest those who have not already gained a certain amount of scientific knowledge. But I think it will be of interest to the general reader to know how electricity is measured by these fixed units. We have already seen in Chapter 8 the great amount of money lost in the early submarine cables which were not capable of doing the work required of them, and the true explanation of this unnecessary waste seems clearly to lie in the fact that at that time there did not exist any proper electrical measurements. It is of interest in passing to note that a great deal of credit, in connection with the basis of electrical measurements, is due to the individual labours of a rather eccentric gentleman, the Honourable Henry Cavendish, a nephew of the Third Duke of Devonshire. Cavendish was a great genius, and he contributed much of value to many branches of science. Having plenty of this world's wealth, he used to shut himself up in his laboratory and busy himself day after day experimenting, from a true love of science. He was in the habit of lending books from his library to any man of science known or recommended to him, and in connection with this it is surprising to find that he was so methodical that he never took down a book for his own use without entering it in the lending register. I say that one is surprised to learn of this methodical plan, 
for it is a known fact that this great genius was very careless in recording his scientific results, often merely jotting them down on the backs of old envelopes or other loose scraps of paper, and though a publication of his researches was made, after a lapse of some eighty years, by Clark Maxwell, there doubtless must have been many interesting facts never made known. Cavendish was so devoted to his hobby that society had no attractions for him. He only met his heir once a year, he himself being a bachelor, and all his intercourse with the outer world may be summed up in his attendance at the meetings of the Royal Society and dining with its members once a week. Any instructions to his servants he wrote down and left in a note on his hall table, while his maidservants were ordered to keep out of his sight on pain of dismissal. The British Association Committee decided to name the electrical units, agreed upon, after the great men of science who had done so much towards the advancement of the science, and it seems to me a pity that the name of Cavendish was not memorialized in some form, although it is sure to be kept in remembrance by all students of physics. The unit of pressure, or electromotive force, has been called the volt after Volta, who discovered the flow of electricity between two dissimilar metals in contact, which discovery led to the construction of batteries. The unit of current, or rate of flow, was called the ampere, after the great French scientist of that name, who suggested the galvanometer, and who did much for the science of electricity. This great physicist was said to have been at all times so absorbed in his work that his wife had very great difficulty in getting him out of his laboratory, even when he had some important appointment to keep. The story is told of how on one occasion, when he and Madame Ampère were to attend some great banquet, his wife at last succeeded in getting him away from his experiments and upstairs to dress, but she evidently did not get him away from the problems working in his mind. After waiting impatiently for his arrival downstairs in evening dress, she was at last compelled to go up and ascertain the cause of delay, and one can well imagine her dismay when she found the great genius sound asleep in bed. His mind had been so absorbed that, coming away with the intention of preparing to don his dress suit, he automatically went to bed, and having doubtless arrived at a satisfactory solution to the absorbing problem, fell into a pleasant slumber. The unit of electrical resistance was called the Ohm, after the great German physicist Professor Ohm, who formulated the law that the strength of an electric current in a wire depends not only upon the electrical pressure driving it through the wire, but also upon the amount of resistance offered by the wire to the passage of the current. While we are not to think of this resistance as a mechanical friction, yet it is well to fix in our minds that this resistance is an inherent property of the conductor itself, and not in any way dependent upon the current that happens to be flowing through it. These three units, the volt for pressure or electromotive force, the ampere for the rate of flow, and the ohm for resistance, are the three practical units of most common use. We all have a fair estimate of what a yard or a pound is, and it would be well if we also formed some conception of what these electrical units are like. Some idea of the magnitude of a volt may be obtained from the statement that the electric pressure, or electromotive force, 
of a single battery cell is between 1 and 2 volts. In thinking of the ampere, we must remember that it is the unit of flow in one second of time, just as one would say of water, so many gallons per minute. It is in amperes we measure the current, while the volts merely indicate the pressure at which the current is supplied. We may think of an ampere as being the current required to make an ordinary glow lamp bright, but this may vary from one-third of an ampere to three amperes, according to the thickness of the carbon filament which the current has to heat. In an arc lamp we require a rate of flow of from 10 to 20 amperes. Thus the heating of a wire or other conductor depends on the number of amperes passing through it, while the voltage will be determined by the resistance we have to send the current through. The pressure required to work an arc lamp with the great resistance offered by the airspace between its carbon points, is seldom less than 60 volts, whereas a small glow lamp with its continuous filament may be worked with as low an electromotive force as 3 volts. It only remains to form some conception of the ohm or unit of electrical resistance. The value of the practical ohm is very conveniently arranged so that it requires a pressure of 1 volt to send a current of 1 ampere through the resistance of 1 ohm. Here we have a very convenient relationship between the volt, the ampere and the ohm, for if we know the value of any two of these, the third may easily be found. If we have a circuit of 2 ohms resistance and we have a source of supply at 6 volts pressure, then we know that the rate of flow will be 3 amperes, for each volt will cause 1 ampere to flow through 1 ohm, so that the 6 volts would give 6 amperes through 1 ohm, but as the resistance is doubled, that is 2 ohms, then the 6 volts will only get the current to flow at half the rate, that is 3 amperes. We may count the value of the practical ohm to be the resistance of one third of a mile of copper wire, about one tenth of an inch in diameter, or one may think of a mile of ordinary iron telegraph wire as having a resistance of 13 ohms. It will be clear that we must be able to read both the pressure and the rate of flow, and these are easily indicated by the effect of the current in passing through a coil of wire in which a magnetic needle is pivoted. To measure the pressure we have a voltmeter, which we may consider as analogous to the pressure gauge on a steam boiler, and to measure the rate of flow of current we have an ammeter or ampere meter. Both of these instruments are galvanometers, having a coil of wire with a magnet at its center or some other arrangement based on this principle. In general appearance they are very similar, and one might quite imagine an Irishman saying that if they were not similar they were the same. In point of fact, the only difference is that the amateur has a coil made of a short, thick wire so as not to obstruct the rate of flow, and the voltmeter has a long coil of thin wire to offer a great resistance to the current. It seems rather strange that both the pressure and the rate of flow should be independently measured by the effect of the current upon a neighboring magnet. It is difficult to find an adequate analogy but one's mind naturally thinks of water, and so perhaps the following picture may be of assistance. If we imagine a pipe through which water is flowing at a constant rate, 
we might place a very little water wheel in its course to indicate, by its revolutions, the rate of flow of the water. Again, if we desired to find its pressure, we might apply a definite friction to the water wheel so that it would require a certain amount of pressure to turn the wheel at a given rate. This must only serve as a rough analogy with the water wheel representing the magnet, but one can see, in the first case, the water left as free as possible to turn the wheel, which corresponds to the ammeter with the heavy wire allowing the current to pass freely. Again, in the second case, we put a resistance in the way of the water, and thus measure its pressure against this obstruction, which in some degree is analogous to the voltmeter, in which we place a definite resistance in the form of a long coil of fine wire. It is unnecessary to describe the details of construction of these instruments, as these particulars may easily be understood from the principle just explained. The dial of the ammeter is, of course, marked off in amperes, and the voltmeter in volts. It will naturally be very difficult for anyone to realize merely by reading about volts and amperes what these units really are. One only comes to realize what a pound weight or a yard measure is by repeated use of these units. The meter which will interest the general reader most is the consumption or supply meter. The first current meter was invented by Edison, and many may remember its appearance at the Paris Exhibition of 1881. This meter was based on the chemical action produced by a current passing through a solution of copper sulphate. It was, in fact, an electroplating apparatus, having two pieces of copper suspended from the opposite ends of a balanced beam. When the current passed from number one copper to number two, it plated the latter with copper taken from the solution and replenished by number one copper. As this number two copper increased in weight, with the copper plated onto it, it depressed that end of the balanced beam which operated a counting mechanism. When this end of the beam came down a certain distance, it automatically switched the current on in the reverse direction, so that it passed from number two copper to number one copper, plating the latter this time, which in turn brought the beam down on the other side seesaw fashion, once more operating the counting mechanism and again reversing the current. In effect, it was simply a means of counting how often the current was able to carry over a certain amount of copper from the one plate to the other alternately, and as the ability of the current to do this depended on the amount of current passing, a direct reading of the current was registered. This gave a starting point for inventors of supply meters, and today forms the basis of some modern meters. Although, in itself, it was not a very efficient meter, owing to its having to work at a variety of temperatures which affected the conductivity of the liquid. It would not be of sufficient general interest to trace the growth of this class of meter, nor even to describe all the different principles at work. I think it will be enough merely to indicate how the measuring is done in the meters in most common use. Many people are curious to know how an electricity meter works, although they may never bother their heads with the details of a gas or water meter. There is nothing mysterious about these meters to them, for they are operated by substantial matter passing through them, 
but to talk of measuring electricity seems to them somewhat mystifying. All electric meters, however, are merely means of registering the effect of the current upon certain material arrangements. The most prominent and most useful property of electricity is undoubtedly its effect upon a magnet. We find this property being made use of in dynamos, motors, telegraphs, telephones, etc., and so it is natural that it should also be used as a measure of the current. The more current one supplies to a little motor, the quicker its armature spins around, so that with a delicately adjusted armature, arranged to operate a counting mechanism, we have a reliable current meter, which, of course, more detail of construction than is here mentioned, such as a contrivance for reducing the speed and yet keeping the revolutions proportional to the variations in the current passing through the meter. We ourselves expend a great deal of energy every day in moving about and performing our daily tasks, and we require to lay in a fresh stock of energy, which we do by eating nourishing foods. When we buy food, it is really the energy in the food that is of first importance to us, whether we so consider it or not. Paying for food, however, is a very clumsy method of paying for energy, for we often, wittingly or unwittingly, pay for and consume foodstuffs that add very little energy to our human mechanism, and how often, owing to the hurry-scurry of life, do we fail to extract the available energy from our food. The point I desire to enforce is that while we have here a very roundabout way of paying for energy, we have a very direct and exact method in the electric meter. It is, of course, the energy of the electric current that we desire to measure, and therefore we must have a suitably arranged unit to work with in practice. We have a dynamo giving out a certain current at a certain pressure, according to the construction of the machine and the speed at which its armature is revolving, so that the energy available will be the quantity of current passing in a given time multiplied by the pressure. The unit for this might be termed a volt-ampere, one volt multiplied by one ampere, but it is more conveniently called a watt, in honour of James Watt, the inventor of practical steam engines. This unit is too small to be convenient, so electricians have adopted 1000 watts as a commercial unit of power and have named this a kilowatt. It is clear that this is only a measure of the power or capability of the current, and the energy the consumer can get from it depends on how long he can get the use of this amount of power, and so the Board of Trade has arranged that the unit is to be a kilowatt for an hour, sometimes called a kilowatt hour, but better known as a Board of Trade unit, written BTU. If the charge is sixpence per BTU, it simply means that the consumer is to get the use of a power equivalent to 1000 watts for one hour, and for this he is to pay sixpence. Of course he may spread the using of this kilowatt over any length of time he desires. He may use it at the rate of 100 watts in one hour, at which case he may continue using that amount of power for 10 hours, and then he has taken the BTU his meter will have registered, and at the settling of accounts he has to hand over the required money value to the supplier. It is well that the consumer should form some definite conception of what he can get from one BTU. 
A 16-candle power lamp is estimated to consume 60 watts, so that he should be able to have that lamp alight for about 16 and a half hours, at the cost of 1 BTU. It is also well that he should fix in his mind how a BTU is made up, for there often seems to be quite an unnecessary vagueness upon this point. The Board of Trade Unit, as already stated, is a power of 1000 watts for one hour, one watt being one volt multiplied by one ampere. He may, if he so prefers, remember the BTU as 1000 volt amperes per hour, so that he knows if his current is being supplied at a pressure of 100 volts, then he is consuming 10 amperes in his board of trade unit. It may be noted in passing that 1000 watts is approximately equal to 1 and one third horsepower. Some readers, to whom the subject has been quite new, may still be a little puzzled as to the meaning of the ampere. The other units seem to be more easily grasped than this one, but I think the difficulty arises from an omission to remember that the ampere is not really a measure of quantity, but is a rate of flow, or current strength. The measure of electric quantity is really the Coulomb, called after a great French physicist who lived during the French Revolution. A Coulomb is the quantity of electricity required to produce a definite chemical effect, to deposit 1.1183 milligrams of silver. An ampere is the rate of flow of a steady current of 1 Coulomb per second, just as one may speak of a flow of water being at the rate of 1 gallon per minute. If we had one single word to represent the phrase 1 gallon per minute, then we should have a corresponding word referring to the rate of flow of water, just as we have the single word ampere to represent the rate of flow of electric current. To be told that water is flowing through a pipe at the rate of so many gallons per minute does not indicate the quantity of water that has passed, until one knows for how many minutes or hours the water has been flowing. In a similar manner, if we are given the rate of flow of a current in amperes, we must also know the duration of the flow before we can tell what quantity has passed. A 2 ampere current will have conveyed in one hour 7200 coulombs, which figure is simply calculated as 2 amperes times 60 seconds times 60 minutes. If we have a current strength of only 1 tenth ampere, then it will take 10 seconds of flow before 1 coulomb has passed. Speaking of a water wheel, we may say that we require a flow of so many gallons per minute to drive it, and in the same way we may say that we require a current of so many amperes to keep the filament of an electric light glowing. The general reader is constantly coming across the word ampere, but he seldom meets the word coulomb, and it is included in the word ampere, the meaning of which, as already pointed out, is a rate of flow of 1 coulomb per second. It is obvious that if there is a fixed pressure or voltage, one can vary the rate of flow, that is, the amperes, by altering the amount of resistance in the path of the current, just as one does in drawing water off the main through an ordinary stopcock. The further one draws the stopcock out of the pipe, the greater the rate of flow, and the greater resistance one leaves in the path of the water, the smaller is the rate of flow. 
As already explained, the electrician places coils of various thicknesses of wire in the path of the electric current, and in this way he is able to regulate the current strength. If we wish to maintain the same rate of flow, amperes, through an increased resistance, ohms, then we must increase the pressure, volts. We already saw that it requires one volt of pressure to drive a current of one ampere strength through a resistance of one ohm. It will therefore require a pressure of two volts to send the same current through a resistance of two ohms. If we had left the pressure at one volt and still increased the resistance to two ohms, then, of course, the rate of flow would have been only half its original, or half an ampere. While the ampere indicates the rate of flow, it is plain that if a current of one ampere be allowed to flow for one hour, then we have a definite quantity of electricity, which we term an ampere hour. It requires a certain pressure to send this current through the circuit, dependent upon the resistance offered. If an ampere hour be multiplied by the pressure, volts, then we have the consumption of electrical energy in watt-hours, 1000 of which are called a board of trade unit. End of chapter 30